Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm the host of the show, and this is a Saturday morning rerun episode where we take a classic episode of Tech Stuff and we present it to you guys who may have missed it. I've been talking a lot about tech and music recently. If you've been listening to the recent episodes, you know all about that. And there have been some great discussions, but it also requires a little bit of uh, knowledge of previous episodes at times. And I know it can be tricky to dig through the archives. So in this classic episode, I talk about how the MP3 compression format works so that you can actually understand how MP3 works as opposed to something like MIDI, and you can get an appreciation for the differences between the two formats. This episode originally published on January 18th, 2017. This is a whole year ago, more than that now. We're in April 2018 as I record this. I hope you enjoy this classic episode. I hope it gives you a deeper appreciation of the technical aspect of creating digital music. And I'll see you guys on the other side. So let's remember that the heart of digital information is the bit. That's either a zero or a one. The basic unit of information for digital formats Zeros and ones. Now we can use those zeros and ones to describe all sorts of information from text to audio to video and really pretty much anything you can think of that's represented digitally. Ultimately, when you get down to it, it's a bunch of zeros and ones. So let's say you start off with your uncompressed audio file. You've got this enormous audio file in front of you. It's made up of zeros and ones. How do you make that file smaller? So in the real world, we can compress stuff, right? We can apply physical pressure to things. Think about packing a suitcase. You can make sure you get that extra outfit in if you just press it down hard enough and get that zipper zipped before it can burst open. But once you get to a certain level of compression, you cannot make things smaller, at least not without hurting yourself or whatever it is you're trying to compress. Digital files are a little different. Because you cannot physically cram the zeros and ones closer together. It doesn't work like that. These are abstract things. You can't make them smaller, right? You can't decrease the font. It doesn't work that way. The numbers represent two different states. So if you want to create a smaller audio file containing the recording that was in a larger audio file, you have to start getting creative. Now, in the last part of this series, I talked about how the MP3 compression algorithm was born from an applied research institution in Germany, and the team behind the MP3 wanted to find a way to compress audio, specifically music, for transmission over uh, phone lines. Uh, eventually, this evolved into the Motion Pictures Expert Group Audio Layer 3 compression methodology, better known as the MP3. And there's also... MPEG-2 and MPEG-4 standards. MPEG-2, by the way, is the basis of compression on DVDs, although the actual DVD format is really a modification of MPEG-2. And MPEG-4 is a compression strategy for audio and video that's frequently used in lots of different uh, capacities, including streaming media services. So by the late 1970s, researchers began to explore the possibility of leveraging psychoacoustics to figure out how to compress audio. And psychoacoustics refers to the way we perceive sound uh, it's uh, and also the physiological effects of sound on us. 
So this involves not just our, our physical sense of hearing, but also our brains and the way our brains interpret sound. So, for example, there's a psychoacoustic phenomenon that's called the Haas effect, H-A-A-S. And I think it's pretty interesting. So here's how the Haas effect works. If you hear the exact same sound coming from different directions, but the two sounds arrive within 30 to 40 milliseconds of each other, your brain will be convinced that you really only heard one sound and it came from the direction that uh, hit you first. So let's say a sound's coming from directly in front of you and to your left, and you get both of them within that 30 to 40 millisecond range, and you hear the one coming from ahead of you first. To you, you're convinced that you only heard that sound once, and it came from dead on straight ahead of you. Your brain kind of discounts the one that came off from the left, although it can reinforce it, which ends up being really useful if you're planning out PA systems for stage shows. I'm not joking. That really is the way that uh, people plan those things out. It's pretty neat. Uh, we humans perceive sounds in a way that's not necessarily representational of all the sounds surrounding us. You can think of your brain as the filter between your understanding and what reality actually is. A lot of stuff goes on that ends up getting rid of information that your brain just says, you know what, he or she doesn't need that. It's just going to confuse things. We're going to dump it. And that's kind of how it works. It's all on an unconscious level. It's not like you're actively working to do this. So let's say you're in a relatively busy hallway and there could be a lot of sounds in that hallway, stuff that's going on constantly around you. Maybe there are doors opening and closing. Maybe there are footsteps going up and down the hallway. Maybe someone's shoes are squeaking against the linoleum floor. People are chattering away in there, but you are having a conversation with someone So you turn your focus on that person and other sounds seemingly fade away. They're still present, but they're not important. So in this example, you would actually call those other sounds a distraction and you would really focus on the conversation. Uh, That also shows how we're able to consciously direct our sense, our perception of hearing. So both of these factors come into play. Now, one thing that MP3 encoding takes advantage of is something called masking. And there are a couple of different variations of the masking effect. One of them is called frequency masking. So let's say you've got two sound frequencies that are similar. Perhaps they're just a few hertz apart. Remember, uh, frequencies are measured in hertz, which is really uh, the number of oscillations per second. So let's say you've got uh, a sound that's at, I don't know, uh, 1,000 kilohertz. And another one that's at... Mm, 1,010 kilohertz. Now, the human ear is precise enough to be able to tell the difference of two sounds that are at least two hertz apart from each other. That's how precise our resolution of hearing, it's, it's at that level. But if you get two sounds played at the same time, and they are that close together in frequency, and one of those frequencies is played at a greater volume than the other, our brains will pick up on the louder sound and ignore the quieter sound, even though both of them are present. What becomes important at that point is the amplitude. Now, the further apart in frequencies you get, the less that has an effect. So if you get far enough apart where there are two pitches, one of them noticeably louder than the other, but they're far enough apart, you will hear both of them. It only works if the two pitches are relatively close together. 
And there's not a universal formula for frequency masking. As you get closer to the boundaries of human hearing, frequency masking becomes easier. So if it's a really low pitch or a really high pitch, it's easier to get away with it. Once you start getting into what is thought of as the sweet spot for human hearing, which is generally considered to be between 2 and 5 kilohertz, you need a greater difference in volume or a smaller difference in frequency in order for masking to work. Frequency masking, at any rate. But then there's also temporal masking. And you might say, okay, I got it. Temporal, that means time. Indeed it does, my friend. This describes the effect of a short but loud sound masking a softer sound for a short time. Weird thing is, the loud sound can actually mask sounds that precede it slightly. Not by a whole lot, but a little bit. MP3 compression takes advantage of both frequency and temporal masking when it's trying to determine which data needs to be included and which data can be dumped because it won't affect your perception of whatever the the audio file is in the first place. So uh, you also probably remember I talked about the physical limitation to what we humans can hear, no matter what our brains might be up to. So th- this doesn't have to do with our brains, you know, filtering through the information that's coming in. This has to do with the physical limitations of the human ear. Uh, in the last episode of the series, I, I said typical human hearing, keep in mind typical, there are exceptions, uh, covers the range of frequencies between about 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz or 20,000 hertz. So 20 to 20,000. Higher frequencies represent higher pitches in sound, lower frequencies, lower pitches, right? And as you get older, your ability to perceive those higher frequencies starts to diminish. So most adults actually have an upper range closer to 16 kilohertz, not 20. Uh, kids, they can hear those higher pitches. You may have heard the story about how some convenience stores experimented with getting rid of teenage loiterers by, by, uh, uh, projecting out these super high pitches that, that adults could not hear, but kids could. And it discouraged kids from hanging out at the convenience store and loitering. Um, I love that idea so much. Anyway, that's because I'm old and my hearing is terrible. Well, remember, I, I also mentioned you can detect changes in pitch at two hertz increments. If you get below two hertz in change, like if it's just a, a, a one hertz difference between two frequencies, it's too low a resolution for us to detect. To us, it'll sound exactly the same. So if you were to hear a, a frequency at uh, 1001 hertz, or 1.001 kilohertz and 1.002 kilohertz, you wouldn't notice the difference. They would sound exactly the same to you. So if you're going to take audio and compress it, one step you could consider is eliminating anything that is outside the actual range of frequencies that we can hear or simplifying any changes in frequency that are smaller than 2 hertz. If you get take all that data and you say... It is physically impossible for a human to perceive this, get rid of that information, then in theory, it wouldn't have any effect on the rest of the recording. But how do you go further than that, right? How do you create a method so that you can really compress this file? You want a method that will preserve the important sounds while potentially ignoring all the unimportant or incidental sounds. And you want it to be automatic because if you have it manually, then that's going to take countless hours just to edit a single sound file. So 
that was the challenge that the MP3 research team faced as a group. Now, their solution, which ultimately created even more challenges, was to come up with what was essentially a simulated human ear and brain. They needed to replicate the experience of perceiving music so that an algorithm could evaluate every sound in an audio file and judge if it in fact was relevant enough to include in the final compressed version. If a sound were imperceptible, then it wouldn't make sense to include it in the MP3 file. So by leaving out all the irrelevant data, they can make the audio information take up less bandwidth. The file itself would be smaller because you just dumped everything that wasn't important. So the team used an algorithm called the Low Complexity Adaptive Transform Coding, or LC-ATC, as the foundation for their research. This was kind of their starting point. And this is an approach that that, uh, tries to do away with redundancy as much as possible, and it also incorporates adaptation to perceptual requirements. Also, MP3s owe a lot to the MPEG Layer 2 standard. So the Layer 2 obviously came out before Layer 3, and so a lot of the features of Layer 3 are really um, their legacy features from Layer 2. Uh, in other words, MP3 group kind of got stuck with them because otherwise they would have had a problem with backwards compatibility. So the result is kind of a clunky arrangement under the hood, and some of the features may make very little sense when I go through them. But some of that's because it's a holdover from an earlier compression strategy, which isn't terribly satisfying as an answer. But the reason many parts of the MP3 compression algorithm are the way they are is because that's the way we've always done it. So next I'm going to dive into the phases of compression. But before I do that, let's all take a deep breath and take a moment to thank our sponsor. So there are two big phases we'll need to talk about with MP3 compression. The first phase is analysis, and the second phase is the actual compression itself. And after that, there's the process of decoding an MP3 for playback, but that's way simpler once we get an understanding of how the encoding process actually happens. So let's begin with analysis. Now, this is the part where the standard has to figure out which frequencies within an audio range or recording, rather, are important or perceptible. So how does a program, an encoder, figure out what we can hear and what we cannot hear? All right, time to get technical. So you start off with your pulse code modulation audio file or PCM file. And you might remember I talked about PCM audio in the first episode of this series. But just in case you don't, It's a lossless digital audio file. The actual format could be a WAV or AIFF or something along those lines. But the important thing to keep in mind is that it is uncompressed. Now, that means those files tend to be pretty big. This is our raw material that we want to take and squish down to a more manageable, transferable size. 
And in our, our last episode in this series, I also mentioned that the standard for CD audio is a sample rate of 44.1 kilohertz. And we learned that you need a sample rate twice the frequency of the highest frequency in your recording. And since human hearing tops out at around 20 kilohertz, the standard for CDs is 44.1 kilohertz. The MP3 standard can support lots of different sample rates, but 44.1 kilohertz is pretty much the common standard. So you've got a number of samples with your audio file, and that number will depend upon how long the audio file is. You've got 44,100 samples per second, actually twice that for stereo. But for the purposes of this discussion, let's kind of uh, stick with mono sound so that I don't start having math coming out of my ears. And we're still in the very easy, simple part as far as math goes. We haven't gotten to the complicated stuff yet. All right, so you got 44,100 samples per second. To compress it into an MP3 format, the algorithm first groups all of these samples into collections called frames. So take those 44,100 per second, and then you start saying, okay, we're going to group you in batches. Each batch is called a frame, and each frame contains 1,152 samples. Now, that's specifically to maintain backwards compatibility to MPEG Layer 2, which established that 1,152 number. But we're not talking about MPEG Layer 2. We're talking about MPEG Layer 3. And though that means we have to get a little more complicated. So each frame consists of two subgroups called granules. So each granule has 576 samples. 576 times 2, 1,152. So 576 samples per granule. Now, technically, MP3 encoders only work on one granule at a time, but they may reference the granules immediately before and immediately after the current one in order to see how the audio within the file changes over time. All right. So now you've got your granules of 576 samples each. Then the MP3 encoder runs the samples through a filter bank which sorts the sound into 32 frequency ranges. Are you, are you crazy about the numbers yet? Dylan, are you? Dylan's, Dylan's nodding. Dylan, it gets worse from here. So you have 32 frequency ranges, uh, which is another nod to the layer two method, which uses those 32 ranges for encoding purposes. But we're not talking about layer two, are we? No, we're talking MP3. Gosh darn it. That means we take those 32 ranges and we subdivide them by a factor of 18. That means we have 576 bands of frequencies, each band containing one 576th of the frequency range of the original sample. So what that actually means, and this this is actually pretty easy, the bands are not limited to a specific number uh, for their frequency range, right? The bands don't mean that... Uh, on the, on band number one, it goes from 20 hertz up to a certain range. And on band 576, it ends at 20 kilohertz. That's not what it means. They're dependent upon the original audio. So if the original audio contains sounds within a narrow range of frequencies, the 576 bands will be more precise. But if the original recording has a vast range of frequencies, the bands are less precise. So another way to think about this is with a pizza. So let's say you get an extra large pizza and you cut it into eight equal slices. And then you get a small pizza and you cut that into eight equal slices. Well, in both cases, you have, uh, with each slice, one-eighth of a pizza. 
But the extra large pizza pizza slice is bigger than the small pizza pizza slice. It all depends on the size of the pizza. So in this case, it depends upon the range of frequencies. And, and Dylan, do you think we could go for some pizza? You know, just, just put the episode on hold and go get pizza. Dylan's nodding. It's great for audio. Uh, yeah. So, uh, pizza. We'll be right back. Okay. That was good pizza. Now, um, oh man, I got a whole bunch more notes. Okay. Well, let's, let's go ahead and and do the rest of this. All right. So you've got your sound divided up into those 576 sub brands of frequencies. You know, the thing I compared to pizza slices earlier. Now you get two different mathematical processes applied to this data. One is the fast Fourier transform or FFT. And the other is the modified discrete cosine transform or MDCT. Now, I am not going to dive deeply into how these transforms work because, frankly, they are beyond my mathematical understanding. But I know what they do. I just cannot explain the process, like how they do what they do. So I'm going to give you the explanation of what they do, what the outcome of each of these transform processes happens to be. But I'm not going to be able to tell you the actual mathematical steps involved in each because I don't math so good, guys. But let's start with the fast Fourier transform. So a transform is kind of what it sounds like. It's all about transforming information in some way. So in this particular case, the FFT transforms the frequency bands we just talked about into data that can be further analyzed by a psychoacoustic model that's in the encoder. So this is that simulated human ear and brain we were talking about earlier. So what the encoder does is it analyzes each bit of data and looks for signs that it represents audio that wouldn't be perceived by a human. So it's looking for any potential for masking possibilities. So are there collections of frequencies that are grouped close together and is one of those frequencies louder than the others? You might be able to do away with those softer frequencies because of frequency masking. Uh, The encoder will also look at whether or not the audio has a lot of complexity to it. Uh, if it has a lot of changes or if it's just relatively steady or simple audio, uh, any transient sounds that are present in the audio might end up being temporal masking. So it'll analyze those as well and see if that's a possibility. Uh, so really what they're looking is for, you know, just any really loud sounds that stand out above the rest of the recording. That's what the FFT is doing. So what about the modified discrete cosine transform? Well, this is happening in parallel with the FFT, and the samples get sorted into different patterns called windows, uh, and the criterion for sorting all has to do with whether the sample represents a steady sound or varied sound. So if you have a simple steady sound, that goes into a long window. If there's a lot of variation in the sound, like there are a lot of consonants in a vocal line or it's like a drum solo or something like that, it would get sorted into a series of three short windows, and each short window contains 192 samples. That amounts to four whole milliseconds, so four thousandths of a second in three pattern windows. So you've got these uh, windows now, either long windows for simple sounds or short windows for the more complex sounds. And then the modified discrete cosine transform kicks into gear. It looks at each long window or set of three short windows and converts them into a set of spectral values. To some of you, that probably sounds meaningless. So let's talk about spectral analysis for a second. 
First, I was very disappointed to learn that spectral analysis doesn't involve a psychologist talking to a ghost about its emotional state. So, bummer. But spectral analysis is when you look at a spectrum of information, like a spectrum of frequencies, or related information like energy states. That's what this transform does. It takes data that originally represented a slice of time in a sound waveform. That's what a sample is. A sample is an instance of time in a waveform and converts it into information representing sound as energy across a range of frequencies. Now, you can plot out spectral information in a lot of different ways, but one common method is to use brightness to indicate energy levels. Higher energy levels are brighter patches in your visual representation of spectral data. High frequencies would appear at the top of a spectral view. Like, imagine a box. And at the top of the box, that's where you would find high frequencies. At the bottom of the box, that's where you find low frequencies. And it's just lots of patches of color. The really bright patches of color represent very high energy uh, frequencies. So they could be high or low in in actual frequency, but we're talking about energy levels, not whether it's a high or low pitch. Uh, looking left to right represents the passing of time. And looking along any vertical point shows you the actual frequency or pitch. And then the respective energy level is the brightness. So it's kind of like looking at sound as a wave, but instead of it being a wave, you're looking at information that indicates frequency range and energy level. That representation is actually kind of analogous to how we hear audio. So an encoder can analyze the spectral view and start to filter out the data we wouldn't perceive due to psychoacoustics. Now, after all that processing, the encoder looks at the 576 frequency subbrands and the levels of spectral intensity for each. And that information can then be used for the next phase, which is compression. But right now, I think we could all stand a little decompression. So let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. So now you're ready to compress your analyzed audio. Good for you. And by you, I mean encoders. This has to be simpler than that analysis segment, right? I mean, that got a little crazy with all the different bands and sub-bands and windows and frames and granules. Sadly, uh, it gets more complicated. All right, so there are two layers of compression going on with MPEG Layer 3. One of those layers depends upon the psychoacoustic analysis, and the other doesn't. So why would you use two layers with different strategies like that? Well, the reason is that one strategy is great for complex audio with lots of components, but not so great with simpler sounds, and the other strategy is kind of the opposite. So the psychoacoustic approach is the one that's really good for complicated sounds. If if you've got a lot of uh, uh, volume changes, lots of different frequencies, it's just complicated and rich sound, you've got a lot of opportunities to look for masking and other acoustic elements that limit the actual sounds that people perceive. So it means there are a lot of chances for you to uh, fudge by dropping all the stuff that people probably wouldn't notice anyway. And uh, if you take a piece that's got a lot of elements at varying volumes, there are likely several opportunities to to do this. But if you're talking about relatively straightforward audio with few components, few changes in volume, 
there's really not a whole lot of data you can ditch without it actually affecting the quality of the audio in a perceptible way. And this is uh, part of what Brandenburg, that guy I was talking about in our first episode in this series, uh, that's what he discovered when he was working with the MP3 standard and he was lis- listening back to that Suzanne Vega acapella track, Tom's Diner. Uh, he was listening to a compressed version of it and he said it was terrible. He said it ruined the quality of the audio. And part of that is because that particular song is fairly simple. There's just not a lot of opportunity to take advantage of masking and other tricks without potentially compromising the quality. So they decided to also incorporate some traditional compression strategies, which which work better with those types of recordings. So the MP3 format takes advantage of both the traditional approach and the psychoacoustic approach. And that allows the encoder to compress files into smaller size without just following a single strategy. Like it doesn't have to do a one-size-fits-all for all elements of audio. Now, combining those two strategies requires a little more mathematical gymnastics. So let's go back to those 576 frequency bins. You know, those subbands we talked about earlier. You got to quantize those suckers. What does that mean? It means assigning a quantity to each to each frequency bin. Uh, you have to give it a quantity of some sort so that you can end up judging uh, how much you can get away with dropping data. So to do this, the encoder sorts those 576 bins into 22 scale factor bands. How are you doing over there, Dylan? Just checking in on you. Okay. D- D- Dylan's got Dylan's got a thousand yard stare going. Hope you guys are doing okay over there. All right. So before smoke starts coming out of your ears, let me explain what the scale factor bands are all about. The whole purpose of the scale factor bands is to determine how the information will be stored within the compressed state. So you want to get away with as little data as possible before affecting sound quality. So if you can say the same thing in a shorter space without affecting the quality of what it is you're saying, you go with it. Brevity is the soul of compression. So if we were talking about language, I would say it's more efficient to say it's raining outside or even just it's raining because you would assume that it would be outside where the rain is happening. And it would be inefficient for me to say it's coming down like cats and dogs out there. It's not as efficient as saying it's raining. So if you can get away with shorter statements without affecting the actual quality, and you could argue that by switching from it's coming down like cats and dogs out there and it's raining changes the quality. And that could be a valid argument. But if you can get away with shorter without affecting quality, you do it. So each scale factor band is represented by a quantity. Then the encoder divides that quantity by a given number called the quantizer, which is the same across the entire frequency spectrum for that recording. The resulting number is then rounded up or down to a whole digit. And here's an important point. Uh, individual scale factor bands can be scaled up or down for more or less precision to represent the actual value of those bands. So what the heck does all that mean? Well, the purpose of dividing and rounding is just to simplify the data, to reduce the amount you need in order to store the information. So let's go with a totally hypothetical example. Let's say you've got a scale factor band 
and you've decided you're representing that scale factor band with the quantity 7840, 7840. And you've chosen the number 100 to quantize your data, meaning that you will divide each uh, scale factor band's quantity by 100. So this is 7,840. You divide it by 100. Uh, and the scale factor for this particular band you have determined is 1.0. That means that once you get that result where you've divided the quantity by the quantizer, you multiply by 1. That means there's no change. You multiply by one, you get the same number. More on that in a bit. Okay, so you take that 7,840, you divide it by 100, that gives you 78.4. Well, now you have to round that number. So you round it down to 78. Now, when you have a decoder and you're ready to play back the information, it comes across this quantity, this 78, and it knows what the quantizer number was, so it multiplies by 100 to get back to 7,800. So the replicated number is actually 40 off from the original number. That original number, again, was 7,840. The replicated number is 7,800. Now, those inconsistencies manifest as noise in the actual playback. So if you wanted to increase the precision of any given scale factor band, you could do so by changing the scale factor number. So in that example just now, I said the number was 1.0, meaning there's no change to that result. But I could have said it was 10, which means we would multiply the quantized number by 10. So we would take that 7,840, divide by 100, you get 78.4. You would then multiply by 10 to get 784. So when the decoder de decompresses the file, it would reverse this this whole uh, thing. It would just multiply by 100. Um, you would end up getting 7,840 again, which means that you wouldn't introduce any noise to the file. You would have a perfect representation. But in some cases, the encoder may determine that any noise that you generate wouldn't be noticed or it wouldn't impact the quality of the audio enough for it to be a problem because of other factors for that particular scale factor band. Like maybe it's really quiet or maybe it's really complex. So in those cases, you could reduce the scale factor number by making it something else like 0.1 instead of 1.0. So that means you would multiply the quantized number by 0.1. So the 78.4 would become 7.84, and then you have to round it to get a whole integer, so you get 8. 7.84 rounds up to 8. Now when a decoder decompresses the audio, it multiplies 8 by 100, that quantizer that we've talked about so much. Uh, and uh, actually at this point it would have to be 8,000 because it's also taking into account the scale factor. Uh, so it's multiplying it by um, 1,000, not just 100. So you would get uh, a number that would pop up to 8,000. And remember, the original was 7,840. So you look at the difference between these two. The original 7,840. The new fat number is 8,000. There's a pretty big difference there. That change might introduce enough noise for it to be a problem. So how does the encoder determine if a scale factor band is meeting the proper criteria? How can it tell if there is uh, too much noise or if the noise falls below the threshold? Well, it goes through what is called a Huffman coding process. At this point, Dylan is currently just staring at the wall and drool is coming out. Huffman coding process uh, it converts scale factor bands into binary strings. And the process goes through a series of tables to determine if the data within the scale factor band requires more or less precision to describe the sound without affecting the audio quality. 
So Huffman coding is a process in which you start with a large number of possibilities and you begin to narrow it down. Uh, some people describe it as the coding equivalent of 20 questions. So you ask your first question, like animal, vegetable, or mineral, you get an answer. So animal. Well, that first answer eliminates a ton of other possibilities and narrows the focus. Like anything that doesn't pertain to animal, you can automatically discount because you already know it can't apply to that answer. Uh, with MP3 compression, this means making certain the number of bits representing a granule, because remember, I mentioned that in MP3 formats, you have frames, and each frame uh, each frame has 1,152 samples and consists of two granules with 576 each. So you, when you answer the first question, it eliminates a lot of other possibilities and narrows the focus. So like with uh, animal, vegetable, or mineral, if I say animal, you're going to not an- ask any questions that have to do with minerals or vegetables only because it wouldn't make sense. You know those aren't going to apply. Same thing with MP3s, except this time it means making certain the number of bits representing a granule. Remember, there are two granules per frame with the MP3 layer. Uh, you want to make sure that the number of bits representing that granule match the chosen bit rate for a compression. So if after going through this process, the encoder says, hey, this granule has more bits than what's allowed. It's too many bits. The the We got to get rid of some of these. The encoder can adjust the scale factor band so that there's less precision, meaning that multiplier, in other words, that bit I talked about earlier, and thus reduce the amount of data needed to represent that particular granule. If a granule comes in under the bit rate, the encoder can increase the precision to reduce noise and fill, fill that granule out properly so that it matches the, the, the actual threshold. After all this, the pairs of granules become frames within the MP3 files, and the only other component in an MP3 file apart from these frames is the ID3 metadata. This is pretty simple. This is like a header, and it comes before all the frames in the audio file and contains information about about the file itself, which can include stuff like the title of a song, an artist name, an album title, uh, other stuff like that. It can also include copyright information, as well as information about the file itself, such as whether or not it's a stereo recording or a mono recording. So when you use a decoder, like an MP3 player, it takes this compressed information, these 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 representations that the music has been reduced to, and it converts that Huffman data back into the quantized format, scales the data back up to its original size or close approximation. Remember, the uh, the uncompressed version may actually be off by a significant amount depending upon each individual uh, granule. And all of that data gets recombined into a new PCM sample that can be played back to you. And that's all there is to it. Nothing could be easier. All right. That took a lot out of me. So it got really technical, and I apologize if I lost any of you out there. Or for those of you who have a lot of experience working on compression algorithms for oversimplifying in several cases. But now we've got a full episode about this. And now I hope you have a better understanding of how a big sound file can be reduced to a smaller sound file. Next time, I'll just say magic. It'll make everyone happier. If you guys have any questions for me or comments or suggestions, anything like that, send me a message. My email is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you guys again 
really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 